Welcome, everyone, to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I'm your host, Paul Niefer, and today I'm, I'm welcoming in Ashley Arrington. And as you're going to tell when you first hear her voice, she definitely has that deep Yankee accent. I guess I'm considered to be a Yankee, and, and Ashley's definitely a Yankee. Isn't that correct, Ashley? That is absolutely correct, Paul. As I've told you before, you can't hardly beat this Yankee accent out of me. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think the, the listeners are going to tell that uh, we're kidding about that because uh, you definitely do not have a Yankee accent. So, uh, um, Ashley, why don't we go ahead and get started with a little bit about your background? Uh, um, you know what? Uh, uh, you know just your background, where you grew up, uh, where you went to school, which I think you're very proud of where you maybe went to school and and your career to to date. Yes. So. I grew up, as you can tell, you know, we uh, we were kidding a little bit there. I do hail from a southern state, and to be exact, that is Georgia. And we'll just go ahead and get it out the way. Go dogs. Um, as unless you've been living under a rock, you know that the University of Georgia, we won our first national championship in 41 years. I was not alive the last time we won a national championship, so I have been talking about it a good bit because I quite literally had been waiting on this my entire life. So y'all just let me live a minute. I will continue to talk about it. But now that that important stuff's out the way, we can get to talking about agriculture and financials. Uh, so I, Georgia known uh, cotton and peanuts. My grandpa uh, was a cotton farmer. We do some of the other stuff around here too. Uh, corn, soybeans, wheat, all that, but we're mostly known for cotton and peanuts. And that's what he did. Uh, my formal education, Education was I don't have an agricultural degree. Um, I learned all I know about ag from just being exposed to it. I live in a heavy cotton peanut area um, of Georgia. Um, I got my bachelor's in finance and then my MBA and then went on to start my career in banking. Um, and I worked as an agricultural, ugh, agricultural. Oh, my gosh. Trying to say words like that with a southern accent will get you sometimes a <laughs> uh, banker. <laughs> And I did that for about 10 years. And then I started working directly with farmers as a consultant to really help farmers. I saw the need on the banking side to, you know, farmers need to have a better understanding of their financials. Sometimes it was something I saw in the market that I was in. Not all farmers need that help, but I saw that with some of mine. So I started working directly with farmers as a consultant, help them put together their financial packages, get their lines of credit renewed for debt acquisitions, refinances and such. And then over the past year, I've come to partner with Ag Resource Management, also known as ARM, um, as their director of real estate. And ARM's known for lines of credit, and I was known for doing real estate loans. So it made sense for us to work together, um, bring all that to the customers, the farmers, as a, a whole package. So everything that I was doing before, I'm now doing now. Um, but instead of being a one-woman show, I now have some manpower and some help behind me and have a much larger reach. Well, and, and pretty soon, instead of saying manpower, we do have to say person power. Isn't that the correct way of saying it, uh, Ashley? Now, I think, isn't that the correct term? Yes, that would be more politically correct. <laughs> but uh, but you're from the South and me. Well, I shouldn't say that. I was going to say sometimes, uh, uh, you know, different parts of the country maybe aren't quite as politically correct as, let's say, the left coast or the uh, up in the New York area and so on. But uh, we'll leave it at that. But uh, um, now, 
And you bring up a good point, because if we're dealing with, uh, let's say, a financial institution, a nor- I'm going to say a normal financial institution, the typical financial institution, if they're providing a real estate loan and they're providing an operating loan, they're going to cross-collateralize those two loans together, including any assets hereafter acquired. You know, That's always a term that we happen to see in those type of cross-collateralization agreements. Uh, ARM does it a little bit different. Can you go through those details? Absolutely. So the way ARM lends money is a little different um, because the asset that we use, because all loans are backed by an asset, right? I mean, there are unsecured loans out there, but for the most part, every loan that any firm or any individual will get is backed by an asset. The asset that ARM uses is the crop, the crop insurance, and government payments. So we're not looking at any other asset. Our lending model, we have proprietary software that we use that just takes into account those things. So you then have the ability to have your other assets, equipment, real estate, free and clear, so that you can have those assets, mainly your real estate, you can keep it separate and have it work for you in a different manner without having that cross-collateralization aspect. Is there a, a sort of a sweet spot as far as the size of loan, uh, both the operating side and the real estate loan side? Uh, I'm just curious if there's any type of sweet spots for for ARM. No, there's no sweet spot. I mean, ARM can do lines of credit uh, down to, you know, as low as you need them, uh, really. I mean, we have some $50,000 loans on the books. That's not our normal loan, but we're willing to work with farmers. I mean, we're, we're here to help, honestly. So if, if someone needs help and that means they need a $50,000 line of credit, we're here to serve them. Um, with real estate, there are a few minimums in place just because of our funding sources, where they come from, but our minimum there is about 150000 And there's really no maximum as it relates to the real estate or the line of credit side. And then on on the real estate loan, uh, I'm I'm assuming there isn't one size fits or one type of loan fits all. I mean, you could do a 30 year AM, a 20 year AM, a 10 year AM. You could do a floating, uh, different LTVs. Go through the the options there that the typical farmer would have. Yeah, and the product suite that we have available, I really think runs the gamut of everything that you could want to serve, you know, an A borrower down to a C borrower, large operations to small. It's really dependent upon the goal of the operation. If their goal is to preserve cash and put less into a deal, we have higher LTV options, you know, up to 80%, which would have an FSA component. We have some FSA hybrid products. Um, And then if their goal is to get the lowest payment possible, and put down some more cash. We have some lower LTV options that go down, you know, they're about 55% max. So we can go 55% to about 80% a loan to value. And there's different qualifiers across there. Um, but we, like I said, we have the FSA option. So we can serve anything from the beginning farmer trying to get started using FSA guarantee all the way to someone who's looking for the best possible scenario, the best possible rate, the best possible AM, and across, you know, 10 all the way to 30-year AM and 30-year fixed products. You know, for those younger farmer listeners out there, and I think sometimes with podcasts, maybe it is a little bit younger audience, although... I, I will admit that I see more and more older farmers like myself. You know, I'm I'm definitely an older, and I am a farmer now. I, I have my acres all over the country, I guess. Um, that what is typically when you hear the younger farmer, beginning farmer, that program, 
what's sort of the requirements there that they have to meet in order to to qualify for that loan? So the main things that we need is we're it's it's an FSA and I and I will say that I that's how I cut my teeth in ag is doing FSA 9010 loans and it is an a great program that's offered to help get farmers started out there because not everybody has, you know, someone to give them land or to work with. Some people, you know, get into farming because if they decide it's what they want to do, they don't have a history in it. And this is a great product for that. Um, so it's, it's the standard underwriting information, three years tax return balance sheet. But the differentiators in that product is we can put more weight on the projections. So, you know, if you're just beginning a beginning farmer, chances are your historical tax returns may not show the capacity to hold the entire real estate loan you're about to take on. But that makes sense, right? Because you haven't historically done that. You're just starting. So we can put more weight on the projection um, part of the approval process. Then also another qualifier is you do have to have some type of management experience, which is, you know, working. And this is, you know, works with, you know, if you're getting into farm buying your first farm, chances are you've already worked on a farm somewhere. Uh, you worked as a farm hand, you worked as a farm manager. So that's the other qualifier that's a little bit different is just showing that you have or having someone say that you have farm management experience. But other than that, it's the typical underwrite, you know, process. Um, the, the last thing that vary a little bit in terms of ratios and getting down to the nuts and bolts of approvals that bankers look at is the debt service coverage requirement is a little less, um, a little less stringent, it's a little more lax, and the debt to asset requirement is a little more lax, but that's because we can allow that because of the FSA 9010 guarantee that's there. But it is a great product to get started with, and then we can, you know, transition you out of that product into long-term fix once some equity is gained and all of that stuff, but it really is great for beginning farmers. And, and I think a lot of times you see a lot of those beginning farmers, I'm going to say the, the bank of mom and dad is helping them with that down payment. Is that what you see quite, quite often too? Yeah, uh, a, a lot of times. And sometimes it's in the form of cash and sometimes it's, you know, that the parents have, you know, a piece of property that's free and clear that they'll throw in with the piece of property to be purchased as, as the equity injection to go there. Now, Arm, I know, has gotten to be a fairly decent-sized organization. Is there parts of the country that you key in more than other parts of the country? I'm guessing with real estate side, it's it's really probably you can go anywhere, but maybe on the operating side, you're a little bit more restricted. I, I'm just curious um, what, what your concentrations are as far as availability for farmers. For the real estate side, you're absolutely correct. We lend nationwide. Uh, we can lend in every state except Alaska. I'm sorry if you're listening from Alaska. I can't do you alone. I'm more than happy to talk to you. Living in Alaska sounds cool, but I can't lend you money. Uh, but as it relates to the line of credit side, uh, our concentration is really more east of the Rockies. However, we do have deals that, that span on the other side, on, on the west side of the Rockies as well. Our concentration isn't as heavy there, but that is an area that we're currently moving into and looking to put more business on the books. And then on your operating loan, that's typically good, just going to be the crop uh, cycle, right? I mean, you're going to uh, have a operating loan that's based on the 2022 corn crop, a peanut crop, or whatever crop it might be. That is correct. It, it, it's a year to year. It comes up for renewal every year, just as the ones that you're accustomed to um, within a bank. And if there needs to be an extension or something done because of crops on hand, 
you know, just show us that you actually have them on hand um, and we can, you know, move it forward. So it, it acts in the same manner that you would a regular loan. Um, we're different, of course, the way that we do it. But, you know, you still have the same crop cycle and time that you would. We don't shorten the time period or anything like that in relation okay. to the bank. Okay. And then, uh, you know, I think a, a month or so ago before we saw the invasion of Ukraine uh, by Russia, everybody thought, well, we knew that interest rates were going up. We thought maybe it might even be a 50 basis point increase in this March meeting coming up, uh, what, next week. Uh, and then maybe 25 to 50 basis points increases almost every meeting thereafter. And by the end of the year, rates would be 200, 250 basis points higher. Now with the Ukraine invasion, maybe not as much, maybe delayed. What's what's Arms thought on on what's happening for you know, the trend in interest rates? Um, I think what you just said is, is exactly the, the trend that we're seeing. You know, I was telling people, time, you know, right now. You know, we had several speaking events. You know, heading into this, and that was my message. The time is now. If you have a line of credit, if you had well, a line of credit is another thing too to take a look at. Um, I'll, I'll speak to that in a minute in terms of variable rates. But if you're looking at your real estate, um, if you have something that's on a variable rate or if you're having something that's coming up for renewal in the next year or so, now is the time to take a look at that. You know, time is of the essence, you know, snapping my fingers in people's face. Let's go. Let's go. This is not a drill. Rates are going up. But now I think we can press a slight pause there. I think rate hikes are still coming. But do I think they're going to happen next week? Um, I'm unsure. If you would have asked me, you know, before the Russia thing happened, um, I would have told you absolutely in March without a doubt. And it's probably going to be not 25 basis points, probably 50 if I was a betting woman. But that's not the case now. You know, maybe we'll see 25 next week, but I kind of even doubt that. I think it's going to be delayed until we see how this thing really shakes out because it really is disrupting the economy, supply chains, all those type things. Well, I mean, we're already seeing uh, oil at, what, 130 plus or minus dollars per barrel. You know, Russia, the in, in, energy person out there said, you know, if you keep doing sanctions on us, uh, you know, oil could easily go to $300 per barrel. I'm not sure if I totally agree with that. I think a lot of that is posturing, but but we know inflation in the farm side has been very dramatic. I mean, if you're looking at fertilizer and you know uh, on the on the nitrogen side, it's up 100 150% on potash, phosphorus, the trace elements, it's all up. And I think what's even scarier isn't necessarily the price increase, it's the the availability. You know, are 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 we going to be there you know, is there going to be enough material there to actually put in a crop and produce a normal crop? And and I'm not really talking about 2022. I'm talking about 2023. Oh, absolutely. The inflation that we've seen, you know, that's the whole talks about interest rates that we had coming up until, you know, uh, until the Russia-Ukraine. And I said, you know, we're probably going to press pause here as it relates to interest rates going up um, is inflation something has to give you know we see the land prices going up we see the inflation in the variables just in the farm market but it's not it's outside of agriculture right paul i mean you see that you yeah. know you're talking about gasoline that affects everybody else we're seeing it in the grocery stores we're seeing it everywhere so something has to give and that was going to be interest rates going up but now that we see you know that may not happen because of this what's the next thing that's going to give we're seeing too much money being thrown at too little goods out there 
And eventually there's a bubble that has to pop. Something has to give in somewhere to, to break this cycle. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, and, you know, there was that book that came out a while back called The Black Swan Effect. And, you know, they, I think they were really talking about the 2008 crisis, what was going to be the black swan effect. But, man, in the last five years, we've had multiple black swans. You know, we've had the pandemic, we've had Russia invading Ukraine. You know, maybe a year from now, we're going to have China taking over uh, Taiwan. You know, we got weather events. I mean, it's, it's, uh, Instead of once every 20 years, now it seems like it's about once every 12 months. Oh, my gosh, yeah. The, the black swan events have got a little bit too frequent for my taste. You know, like you mentioned, weather events, poor North Carolina, they got hit with two 500-year storms over, what, the course of three years. We had hurricanes here in Georgia came in. You know, my whole life I hadn't seen hurricanes like we had, and we had one, you know, 18, 19, 20 come up. You know, it was it's crazy the, the way that you're seeing these things come up, so. I don't know what's, you know, making all these black swan events happen, but they can calm down if it's up to me, you know. Yeah, yeah. You, you guys can get uh, you can get more rain in one day than we get all year. So I, 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 I've uh, I've been not too much in your neck of the woods, but I've been in like uh, uh, Iowa or Minnesota when they're getting like four inches of rain in one day. And, and that's just, you know, that is heavy rain coming down. Oh, gosh, it's crazy. Yeah. We hit when Matthew, it, that was the big one that came through that. No, it was Michael. I'm sorry, not Matthew. Too too many M's. Yep. Uh, Michael, that came through in 2018 here. I'd never see. I literally felt like I was in the rinse and spin cycle of a washing machine. <laughs> when that came yeah. through, it was like nine inches of rain over the course of four hours. It was something nuts like that. So it, it gets pretty wild here during hurricane season. <laughs> Yeah, I remember my wife uh, was down in uh, uh, San Jose del Cabo about, oh, I'm going to say six, seven, eight years ago by herself. She she was fine going down there, but a hurricane hit and she was fine. But the um, the and she was at a resort hotel type thing. And the hurricane brought so much sand off up the beach. It filled in the, the pool completely. I mean, it just wiped out all the water that was in the pool and replaced it with sand. It was that much uh, wind and power. And, and it's just crazy what can happen. That's nuts. Yeah. Well, weather is really, you know, when, you know, to go over to farmers financials with this, just for just a hot second, you know, when you talk to a farmer, those are the main two things. You know, I'll take a look at it, look at their financials and be like, you know, something clearly happened in 2018, you know, what happened here or whatever year it was. And the prices, the answer is usually one of two things, prices or weather. It's one yeah. of the two, you know, yeah. and when you dig in, you'll, you'll find some other things in there, but the number, the top two answers I always get is, oh, it was prices or oh, it was weather. Oh, it was prices and weather. Well, yeah, it's like in uh, you know my neck of the woods out here in 2020, we had a record crop. I mean, we had dry land wheat easily do 170 bushels to the acre. And last year we had a record drought and that wheat that did 170 bushels was lucky to do 80 or 90. So, you know, it's it's which and I know a lot of parts of the country, 80 or 90 bushel wheat is a very good crop. But out here, it's not a very good crop for that productive land. So, um you know, I, I think uh, what we'll do, Ashley, right now is we'll go ahead and take a quick break for a sponsor message. And then when we come back, we'll, we'll talk about uh, some of the good things and some of the bad things. And maybe that's not the right word that farmers do when it comes to financial information that they provide to their lenders. So we'll go ahead and take a break right now.
get timely updates about taxation, accounting, succession planning, and other issues that are unique to farmers and agribusiness processors. Find out about major agribusiness events and how to comply with new laws that affect your business. Subscribe to Farm CPA at blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness and experience the CLA promise. blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness. Welcome back, everyone, to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I'm Paul Niefer, your host, and we're going to go ahead and rejoin our conversation with Ashley Arrington. And Ashley, you know, we, we sort of discuss what uh, what you do at ARM and, and the services that, that you and ARM can provide. But let's, before you were there, you were sort of a consultant that was helping farmers you know, renew their operating lines, maybe help them on that financial side. So let's dive in a little bit better or a little bit more into what do farmers maybe don't do the best when it comes to providing financial information to their banker? I think, I think, okay, well, well, let's just talk about that. It's hard for me to just be like, oh, they don't do this well without tampering it with something that they do do well. But I do know we're going to get into what they do well. So here, so know that I'm going to, say nice things after I say these things that are not as great. Um, but I will say it's just a lack of detail. Sometimes I send there, you know, seeing a, a balance sheet, a handwritten balance sheet, and there's nothing wrong with handwritten. Um, you know, software is better in Excel, maybe a little more detail, but if you can still handwrite it with the level of detail needed to truly understand your operation, I, I can be, I can be okay with that. But, you know, all, you know, it, it guesstimating, it's all even numbers on the back. When I take a look at a balance sheet and I see it's all, you know, cash, 100000 even. I owe $500,000 even here. It's kind of a red flag to me of, you know, the, these aren't true. These are guesstimates. These are not, this is not the true data that should be on this balance sheet. So using the true data and getting a little bit more detail in the weeds. And it's not that your banker is nosy to know every single detail, but it helps them understand your operation. And the better they can understand your operation, the better they can help you meet your goals. As I was talking about a second ago, you know, it's depending on the goals of your operation, which real estate product I put you in. If I don't have all of those details on your balance sheet, to truly know what I think your goal is. Yeah, you can tell me your goal, but without having the numbers behind the story you're telling me, it's hard for me to sit there and recommend a good product for you, if that makes sense, to say, okay, well, looks like you're flush with cash here, but if, if, the, if that number's not right, that may not be the case, or it looks like you don't have any cash, so we need to do this when you truly have cash. So truly taking the time and putting the detail into your balance sheet is really one of the most important things um, for banking and helping. It's kind of one of those, help me help you. You know, yep. I want to help you, but you have to help me by giving me that detail on your balance sheet. Do you see a trend out there that, that farmers are getting more better at maybe using, uh, you know, computerized accounting system, uh, you know, really, uh, cleaning up their uh, internal accounting system. What, what type of trend do you see in that area? I have seen it 
somewhat, you know, most of the financials that I get presented, you know, when I was consulting or now, because, you know, every single package that I look at has a balance sheet component um, come through. The majority of them are still internal prepared. Um, and a lot of them are still Excel, which is fine. Excel is my jam. I have no issue with Excel. Um, but the Excel or, you know, some type of QuickBooks, Red Wing, something like that, that that's that's in there. But I still have a good many coming in handwritten, Paul, which is fine, like I said. But I, I haven't seen a ginormous shift, somewhat of a shift, but not the ones that most people think, oh, it's 2022. You know, this is the level of sophistication we should have. I haven't seen that ginormous shift yet to be like, oh, everybody's using software now. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, yeah, because uh uh, I have a background of being a part owner of a of a plastic thermoforming and printing company, and and of course everything we had was you know computerized, and and we weren't a large company. I mean, I think, uh, you know at the peak we were close to thirty million in revenue, but we were decent size, and and I mean we knew our numbers. The numbers were there. We had cost accounting. Uh, we knew exactly how much every single job that went out the door, what it costed. Uh, now, I, I will admit that I had to explain contribution margin analysis to, to some of the internal people, but at least they knew the numbers. And with farming, I, I, and I shouldn't categorically do a broad stroke. I think the dairy people, the livestock, the, the hog operators, um, you know, the chicken guys, uh, they know their numbers because they need to know their numbers in order to determine whether they're really making a profit or not. On the crop side, I think farmers have an intuitive knowledge of what their numbers are, but they really don't have the detail and they can't really explain to a banker, what is my true cost of production? What is my true break even? And, and, and I think it is getting better, but like you say, it's not to the level where it needs to be. Absolutely. Um, I, I agree. And it's, you know, I, I feel like, and I don't know if we're ready to switch gears to what farmers do well, but what farmers do well with their bankers is talking about the operational side of things. You know, that's what they're great at is making the crop. But when it comes down to the, you know, small details of, you know, their financials, that's where the gap comes in sometimes. And I think some of that is related to um, the row crop farmers being an annual type business. You know, when we do real estate loans, they're due on, a, on an annual or a semi-annual basis. When we have a line of credit, it is due annually. We renew it annually. So sometimes farmers only take a look at their numbers once a year. And I feel yeah. like that is another thing that they could be just a bit better at sometimes. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's some out there who look at their monthly, probably even weekly maybe. But a lot of them truly don't take that look except that one time a year. So you don't really know, am I straying off course from my budget? Am I not Am I not going to hit my revenue projection that I started with at the beginning of the year? You know, if you don't see the, you know, veering off course throughout the year, it's hard to straighten the path back out before you get to the end of that crop season. So I feel like looking at financials more frequently is something that could be done better. Yeah, and, and I think um, farmers just need to realize that if you have a good set of accrual basis financial statements, you know, because cash basis, that that's looking in the mirror. All the cash basis financial statement does is tell you 
what happened in the past. You know, whereas with an accrual basis financial statement, a good set of accrual basis financial statements, it allows you to see more what's going to happen in the future. It allows you to manage more in the future. Uh, whereas the cash basis, you know, that that that's just uh, that's history. That's old news. So I, I think farmers could do a better job of understanding those accrual basis statements. Use it as a management tool. Uh, some of my most successful farmers out there are on the accrual method. They understand what that means. It helps guide their decisions. Uh, it isn't. It isn't so much of a guess. You know, with with uh, when you have a lack of financial statement transparency, maybe that's the way of saying it. Uh, you're not really making a an informed decision. You're making a very very sometimes inaccurate guess. So that that's sort of the trends that I see. Yes. For sure. And I can't express enough the importance of, of accrual-based financials to farmers. Uh, you know, a cash is just a moment in time. And if you want to do a moment in time analysis, where am I at right this minute? And it is good to know that sometimes, you know, because but you need to know when it relates to farming. It's good to know where you've been, where you are, but also where you're going. And if you're stopping, at, if you're only doing cash, you can take a a look back at, you know, where you've been and where you are. But the most important part of running a business is planning for the future. You know, you can't fix the past and running your business. You can all, and you can only look at the cash part in terms of, you know, what I want to do tomorrow. But if you don't know where you're going for the accrual part to move it forward, that projection based part, not, well, it's not a projection, but the, the moving forward part of it, the future, then, you know, you're, you're, you don't have a good business plan in my yeah in my perspective of it because you have to know where you're going how it's going to get you there so i think it's really important to use the accrual based system and take a look at that so that you can i feel like you're you could do a much better job of managing your business on that system than you can cash i i guess uh we had mentioned i think you covered what they do well but i just wanted to give you an opportunity to maybe cover something else that they do well that we didn't hit uh for sure well, I think the what farmers do extremely well, you know, it they're best at raising a crop and telling you everything related to that. I mean, and really farmers taught me so much. Like I said, you know, I my background is not in agriculture. So, you know, he, when I first started my career, having farmers come in and just tell their story. Farmers are so good at telling their story in terms of what's going on, you know this is what happened. You know, I, my bushels, you know, I made X amount in this field, I only made X amount in this one and rate and what's attributed to raising the crop. And then also hearing about, you know, the, the management of the day to day part of it, keeping everything straight, keeping the irrigation running. They're really good managers when it comes to that. And they're really good at telling their story as it relates to how the farm itself operates. Um, and that is one thing that I absolutely love about farmers and what they're good at because it, it teaches me. That's how I continue to learn. Yes, I, I read stuff. Yes, I listen to podcasts, all that stuff. But hearing farmers tell their story about their operation, how it's running, what's going good, what's not going well for them, I feel like is one of the biggest assets that they have. Okay. Okay. Good. And I agree. I mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, farmers love to talk about uh, how to grow a good crop and, and uh, good farmers definitely understand what's involved in growing a good crop. So that's, that's, uh, that's part of the, uh, my favorite part of dealing with farmers is, is just getting their knowledge about 
what they grow and why they grow it and how they grow it. Yeah, you know, and then you get into the stuff about they're really good about, you know, the operational size that relates to rotation and understanding rotation of crops and all that. I've learned so much about it, and that's what, you know, there's so much just stuck in their head right there that you wish you could just pull more and more out of it. But I feel like they're just excellent when it comes to that part of it. And and I'm just curious, since you deal on the real estate side, um, what what are the trends that you've seen in land values? I mean, I think we all know that land values are up, but is there certain parts of the country that are really up a lot more compared to other parts of the country? I, I know out in our area, um, certain, maybe the non-irrigated ground, yes, that value has definitely popped up, but on the irrigated side, uh, I'm not seeing as much increase in the values, at least uh, over the last six months or so. So I'm just curious what you're seeing across the country. Yes, for sure. Well, in my part of the country here in the southeast, we've seen an uptick a bit, but we've been pretty stagnant, Paul. I mean, when I first started my banking career, um, you know, 15 years ago, it was $3,500 an irrigated acre is really what we were looking at in terms of this area that that I'm in. And now we're up to about, you you see it anywhere from 4500 to 5000 depending on what part of the state you're in. So we've been up, you know, $1,000 to $1,500 an acre over the course of 15 years but it that's and we're about around 5,000 now but when you get over to Iowa Iowa has just exploded um and some of those sales I think are outside money coming in they're not farmer purchases of farm real estate they're investor purchases of farm real estate um but we are still seeing elevated farmer to farmer sales as well when it relates to Iowa Indiana Illinois the stakes as you yep. call it i've seen the, i've seen the biggest jump in that area um and like some of it's investor money but some of it at that elevated values is still farmer to farmer well and i think even right now we're seeing how investor money not necessarily on the real estate side but in the wheat market you, you know you have this etf weat that non-farmers you know the the people that were investing in game stock because they thought hey it's going to the moon they're stuffing all this money into the wheat etf and then the wheat etf then has to go to the chicago board of trade or wherever it is and start buying wheat contracts and it's just driving up the the value of wheat more than what an elevator is willing to pay or what the market is willing to pay and that certainly is distorting and we're getting that huge volatility i mean uh, I think the last couple of days we've had a almost a two dollar uh, swing in wheat prices at the spot uh, spot contract, and you know that's just unheard of. I mean, it used to be a big move in wheat was thirty or forty cents. Now you're getting two bucks in a day, so uh, it, it is a little bit of a different time. It it is very much a, a different time, you know, and I feel like the investor part of it is, you know. Long term, where is that going to go? Because this bubble is going to pop. I mean, yeah. we, we know that. Um, we, we've seen it before. It's going to happen now and it's going to happen again, you know, many years in the future. But eventually, the, the bubble is going to pop. Well, after that bubble pops, an investor has X amount in this ground. Are they going to want to exit it? Are they going to hold on to it? Are they, if they're renting it back to a farmer, are they going to hold the rents at the levels they are now, even when prices go down? You know, those are some of the worries that I have about that. 
Um, yeah. I'm not trying to say, you know, invest or buy or anything like that. What's their long-term play for it? And is it something that it works for a farmer to rent it back to them now? But are they going to understand the dynamics of having, you know, what rent's going to be when corn, if it goes back to $3? And if they're yeah. going to sell it to somebody, what it should be sold for and what can cash flow on paper? So that there's a difference there. And I think we're going to see a pop in that bubble, you know, in interest rates are going to make some of that, you know, land price bubble pop too, when those interest rates do start to kick in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm definitely seeing some, uh, you know, cash rents above $500 per acre. You know, that's okay. If you're doing a one-year cash rental at 500 an acre and you got everything locked in, but you know, if you're signing a three-year cash lease at 500, that 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 would concern me. Now, if it's a few acres, not a big deal. But if it's a thousand acres and your total operations two thousand acres, I would definitely be concerned about that. Yes, that, most definitely. You know, because if if you're going to lock that in for that three years, you haven't locked in your crop for three years. Of course, you yeah. haven't. So you don't know if it's going to cash flow or not. So that that's definitely some some of the conversations that I've been having. And, you know, things that are giving me pause at, at the moment in the market that we're in, because, you know, you have to we're trying to we talked about how to manage through, you know, the downtimes that we had there. Now that we're in the good times, we have to talk about managing the good times that we're in, how to proper, properly place our profits, but also look forward to the future where we know we're not always going to be in this time. And what's that going to look like? So even though times are good right now, we still got to think about when are they going to get bad again? What's that going to look like and go ahead and prep ourselves for it? Yeah, and I and I think and, and I've said this a few times myself is typically the worst decisions you make are when times are good, not when times are bad. You know, when times are bad, you hunker down, you're very conservative. But when times are really good, and right now times are pretty good, although we know we have some input issues. But uh, you know, based on pricing, this is where it's too easy to make that quote fatal mistake that will hurt you two or three years down the road. Absolutely. I mean, that's what we always say. You, you buy tar, you buy farms in the good times and you pay for them in the bad. So everybody's <laughs> looking at purchases now, but those payments are going to be made. We're going to be figuring out how to make it work and rolling all that together. So now, you know, build cash, build equity right now is, I think, should be part of the name of the game. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, Ashley, thank you very much. Uh, I know you're having some weather issues down there. So, uh, I, I uh, and actually, when I drove into work this morning, there was about two inches of new snow on the road. So, uh, um, but I'm guessing by the end of today, it'll be gone. I think we're supposed to be back up into the high 40s, low 50s. So, but uh, thank you very, very much taking your time out of your day to have the conversation with us. Oh, absolutely! Thanks so much for having me, Paul. Okay, again, this is the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I'm your host, Paul Niefer, and we're signing off.